You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin with some dramatic developments in the coronavirus outbreak. The Canadian government now putting together a plan to evacuate Canadians still in China. Ottawa securing a plane to get Canadians out. Also, Air Canada announcing today it's suspending all direct flights to Beijing and Shanghai. Canadians are now being warned against all non-essential travel to the country and to avoid travel altogether to the province of Hubei, the epicenter. This, as the World Health Organization is set to reconvene tomorrow to discuss the outbreak. Tetraneki now with the latest on the spread of the virus and the effort to bring Canadians home. It seems a lot of international travelers are erring on the side of caution these days. Not since SARS has YVR seen so many face masks. Everybody, yeah, wear their mask. Some are even doubling up efforts. I feel safe if I, uh, if I have the face mask. But the reality is the coronavirus, while expanding, is still relatively contained, according to the World Health Organization. The continued increase in cases and the evidence of human-to-human transmission outside China are, of course, both deeply concerning, although the numbers outside China are still relatively small. Still, the organization's meeting again tomorrow to see if it needs to do more. And now that the coronavirus has surpassed SARS for infections to date, several countries are asking its residents to steer clear of the epicenter in China. Several airlines, including Air Canada, will stop direct flights to mainland China tomorrow, leaving those there under quarantine asking where's Ottawa in their hour of need. It's very frustrating to hear the news about, you know, other countries planning an evacuation and Canada just saying, We don't have any plans. The first American flight of evacuees has already arrived back home where passengers are being held in quarantine for 72 hours. And late today, Ottawa did announce it would also send a plane, but only after China's okay. You need to tailor the response with the need of the people. We have now 160 Canadians who need consular assistance. We're in touch with them. We're assessing their needs. Of those 160, not all want to leave, like a Canadian teacher and his family, who wish to stay in a city of 11 million that now looks like a ghost town. It was like being in a Walking Dead episode. And I, I was going to the market the first time on my own, and I was walking up the street. There's no one around. And I was going there, like it was uh, quite busy. So when I came back, like from Dubai to at Beijing, I found like it's, it's pretty much empty. Beijing today is pretty empty, but it's also where the World Health Organization's Director General has just returned from after talks with Chinese authorities. His assessment is that China is doing a remarkable job in handling this outbreak. Ted Chernecki, Global News. And Nadia Stewart is live at YVR for us tonight with more on the cancellation of those flights with potentially thousands of passengers affected. Nadia. Yeah, that's right, Chris. There will definitely be a ripple effect, but it's one of those cases where it's better safe than sorry. And in the case of Air Canada, they are playing it really safe, temporarily suspending all of their flights to mainland China, specifically their destinations, Beijing and Shanghai. Now, the airline operates 33 flights per week to the country with departures out of Vancouver, Toronto and Montreal. This suspension will be in effect from January 30th until February 29th. Air Canada is offering to rebook or to refund those flights. 
Now, with this suspension, there will be some kind of an economic impact. It's much too early to say overall what that will be, but we are already hearing from one travel and tourism company that this is going to cost them about one-fifth of their income for this year. It seems to be escalating, so that brings a lot of concern with the uh, two members as well as uh, our planning for the trip. Because uh, January 27th, China closed all the local uh, attractions, including, well, even the Great Wall, you can go to the Great Wall. So, uh, and there's no certain date of reopening. So we feel that uh, for the welfare and uh, for the safety and for the health situation of the tour member, we should uh, just postpone the trip to uh, next year. You know, I've been here at the airport for live reports three times over the past week, and every time we're here, people are stopping to ask us questions. So coronavirus is definitely top of mind for passengers here. Also, the number of people that we're seeing walking around with masks has certainly increased uh, since last week. So definitely lots of concern here, everyone playing it safe if they're traveling. Back to you guys. No doubt. Okay, thank you very much, Nadia Stewart of YVR. Now, in other news, Premier John Horgan is telling Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum to back down in the fight over Uber. It comes as the ride-hailing giant launches its own legal action against the city, leaving drivers caught in the middle. Richard Zussman reports. It was supposed to be a way to earn some extra money away from his full-time job as a truck driver. Instead, Sukjet Singh Hoti is stuck with a $500 fine for driving for Uber in Surrey. I'm so sad. I was so stressed out. I couldn't sleep last night. Hodi has been stuck in the middle of an ongoing battle between the province's second biggest city and the world's largest ride-hailing company. Uber says provincial law is clear. Surrey can't stop them or their drivers from operating and are getting the courts to enforce that. So we're looking to actually stop Surrey from the bullying that drivers are facing by being drawn out and, and going through this process with a bylaw officer. Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum says drivers will get fined if they don't have a business license. Even though the city isn't issuing ride-hailing licenses, Premier John Horgan says it's time for McCallum to back down, follow the rules, and issue those licenses. And I think the way forward for Surrey and for Mr. McCallum is to listen to uh, the citizens in his community who want to see uh, competition. Supporting the company is complicated for the BC NDP, especially in vote-rich Surrey. Jagrit Brar, an MLA in the area, criticizing the BC Liberals during the last campaign for supporting the company. You are representing the interest of Uber, an American-based company, my friend. That's what you have been doing for the last two years and not listening to a lot of people here from the taxi industry. Uber drivers like Hoti frustrated. They are stuck in the middle of this game of politics. I have a question for the mayor too. If he have a problem with the Uber, why he following us? Talk to the Uber. Gave him a fine. Why are they giving us fine? Hoti hopeful the ticket will be waived if Uber wins a court. But if that doesn't happen, Surrey City Councilor Jack Hundle, one of McCallum's political opponents, says he'll cover the fine. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Day two on the stand for Rocky Rambo Wayne Nam Cam, accused of first-degree murder in the killing of a Vancouver couple. He's pleading not guilty, and today Cam's testimony focused on the video games he was consumed by before the killings. Ramina Dea was in court, and we should warn you that some of the details in this story are disturbing. 
A bizarre day of evidence, the accused killer on the stand again, but this time as somewhat of an expert on video games, which is the crux of defense's case. Skyrim, a fantasy online game in which the player commits violent killings to advance levels, is one of several video games which consumed Rocky Rambo Waynam Cam's life. The 29-year-old told the court he was spending 15 hours a day on his computer playing video games and reading comics after he moved from Calgary to Vancouver in the summer of 2017. Defense counsel Faisal Alami created his own character to show the court how the game works. The accused giving a play-by-play of different levels. Cam laughing a little at one point because it takes his lawyer too long to kill the woman. I'm going to assume your weapon is not good, your skills not so high, and your control is not very good. Defense says Cam suffered from a mental disorder when he attacked Diana Ma Jones and her husband Richard Jones in September 2017. Cam described using a hatchet and pocket knife on his victims, which were purchased at Canadian Tire. Defense says the attack was random, there's no motive, and Cam does not have a violent history. The accused thought he was in a video game when he killed the couple, says defense, adding that it appears to be the only logical explanation. Romina Dea, Global News. Three more women have come forward reporting assaults in or near a Coquitlam Park. RCMP say the total number of reported sex assaults at Glen Park is now up to seven. Investigators say the suspect preys on women who are walking alone, usually approaches from behind and then slaps, punches or grabs them before running away. While none of the victims have seen his face, he's described as having a slight build and is short or below average height. Police are advising women to be vigilant and walk in pairs if possible. A Port Coquitlam woman and a community care center have been criminally charged after a woman who required round-the-clock care was found dead in a private home. When RCMP arrived, they say there was no indication of trauma. However, as Grace Key reports, there was a lot of evidence the woman died a slow and agonizing death through neglect and starvation. When 54-year-old Florence Gerard died, she weighed just 56 pounds. She had Down syndrome and needed around-the-clock care. On October 13, 2018, she was found dead in her caregiver's home in Port Coquitlam, where she had been living for eight years. When our officers arrived to this call of a sudden death, there was no indication of trauma or abuse. However, there was an indication that the victim had not received the care that she required. The official cause of death as determined by the coroner, was malnourishment and starvation. Her caregiver, 51-year-old Astrid Charlotte Dahl, has now been charged with criminal negligence causing death and failing to provide the necessities of life. At the time, Dahl was in a residential home share agreement with Kinsight Community Society. Kinsight has also been charged with failing to provide the necessities of life. According to Kinsight, this is the first time in its 65-year history that they've been the subject of a police investigation involving death, adding, the health and safety of people served is our top priority. Kinsight establishes contracts with qualified individuals who provide shared living services in their homes. Dahl reached out to Global BC denying the allegations. It does appear things have recently started to unravel for her. Court documents reveal she was recently in financial trouble with mounting debts.
Kinsight has made required improvements to its systems and processes, and those are being monitored by Community Living BC. Allegations against Dahl and Kinsight have yet to be proven in court. Both will be making a court appearance on March 9th. Grace Key, Global News. John Horgan is admitting defeat in the legal battle against Trans Mountain, saying today the court's ruling on the pipeline should be respected. Keith Baldry is live in the studio with us tonight. Keith Horgan actually linked the Trans Mountain and coastal gas link projects when it comes to accepting the court's decision. Yes, yeah, very interesting. The, the basic argument here, the court decisions have to be upheld. Uh, when he, he came to me, John Horgan said, I'm going to use every tool in the toolbox to block this pipeline. Turns out the toolbox wasn't very big and all the tools are gone with the loss of that court case at the Supreme Court of Canada level just uh, last week. Uh, again, linking that uh, the, the TMX pipeline to the need for the coastal gas link pipeline and again, underscoring the argument that the court decisions have to be respected. John Horgan, for the first time, throwing in the towel on blocking the TMX pipeline. Here's part of what he had to say. I'm not enamored with the prospect of a seven-fold increase in tanker traffic in the Strait of Juan de Fuca and the Salish Sea. But uh, the courts have determined that the project is legitimate and should proceed. That's the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, in the south. And I acknowledge that and I respect that. So the BC government's out of the picture now in terms of blocking the pipeline, but it's not over in terms of challenges. There's still one major court challenge at play in the Federal Court of Appeal. First Nations uh, brought a challenge uh, arguing that the pipeline did not, was not properly approved by Cabinet when it went through the environmental assessment process. We don't know when that decision is going to be uh, made, but that's the final challenge facing this pipeline with the BC government now out of the way. All right. Thanks for that, Keith. All right. Right now, though, the dream of completing the SkyTrain line all the way out to UBC gained some momentum with a new partnership between the university, the city of Vancouver, and local First Nations. The project has an estimated price tag of almost $4 billion. Jordan Armstrong explains where the three parties will be taking their pitch in the hopes of securing funding. Almost everyone agrees SkyTrain all the way to UBC makes the most sense. But right now, there are neither the dollars nor cents to get it past here, Broadway and Arbutus. Why bother building something half done? The mayor of Vancouver shares that view. So he, plus the president of UBC and the leaders of three First Nations, are teaming up to lobby other levels of government for more cash. What we really need is a, at least at this point, a verbal commitment. After which would begin the more complex task of a funding formula. The seven kilometers from Arbutus to UBC is projected to cost about $4 billion. Stewart says the federal and provincial governments should cover 80% of that bill. I would challenge senior governments to say no. I mean, I, I think that's a very difficult thing for them to say. So I don't really have a plan B. I mean, I know what my job is, is to, is to go get this money and that I'm not going to give up. Not only is it good for the region, it's good for reconciliation, which this Prime Minister has said is so important. But what about other proposed projects in the region? Skytrain to Langley or a gondola to SFU? Stewart says he supports those too, but his job is to advocate for his city. And he believes this is a national, not regional, competition. Who I'm really worried about is Toronto and Montreal. What I'm really worried about is, you know, there's a certain pool of federal money that's going to be decided in the next kind of two years. Uh, and what I'm worried about is it's going to go to those cities instead. So behold this coalition of local power players, all well aware that the squeakiest wheel gets the grease, or in this case, SkyTrain. 
Jordan Armstrong, Global News. After more than 18 months of consultation, an expert panel is recommending big changes in the broadcasting industry, including oversight of foreign streaming services. The panel's report makes 97 recommendations, including that government force streaming giants like Netflix, Amazon, Spotify and Apple to create Canadian content and be subject to a sales tax. It also suggests the CBC stop selling advertising within five years and rely solely on the more than $1 billion it gets from taxpayers every year. The panel warns advertising puts the public broadcaster on a collision course with private broadcasters and print media, all competing for a dwindling pot of advertising revenue. While we embrace this new world of endless choices and voices, as Canadians we also expect that there will always be a place for Canadian voices and perspectives where we can showcase our diversity as a country. The Fed say they will consider the recommendations and act, quote, as quickly as possible to modernize the legal framework governing the sector. A bombshell accusation tonight from the adoptive parents of a teenager in ministry care. They allege the 15-year-old's caseworker gave her the name of her biological father when the family knew he didn't want to get involved. That is a direct violation of the B.C. adoption rules. And as Aaron MacArthur explains, it made matters worse for a teenager already in crisis. Searching for birth parents can be fraught with difficulties for adopted children. Last month, one girl looked for her birth father only after someone gave her the sensitive information. Her adopted parents are furious. It's been extremely difficult for us and her as well. Due to privacy laws, we can't identify anyone in the family. But they say the information was shared by a ministry social worker. While she was in ministry care, she asked her social worker straight up who her father was because he was never in the picture, never wanted anything to do with her, nothing. And the social worker opened up a closed court sealed document and released that information. And as soon as we found out, my husband called the social worker and she admitted that yes, she did release it because our daughter asked. The Ministry of Children and Family Development won't talk about individual cases because of privacy. But MCFD did send Global News a statement, which clearly outlines the prohibition of identifying birth parents. It reads, no contact details or formal information may be provided to an adoptee under the age of 19 or to the adoptive parents that would provide specific identifying information unless an openness agreement has been created. Adoption lawyers say MCFD needs to have clear policies in place to prevent this kind of breach from happening again. The social worker should have inquired with the uh, child's adoptive parents. We want the public aware of what the ministry is doing, the government to take action, and we want the social worker fired. The family hasn't heard a word from MCFD since their original complaint. No information about an investigation, no information about discipline, Nothing at all. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. More fire showing. We do have jumpers. No one actually jumped, but still a harrowing scene in West Los Angeles this morning as flames shoot out the side of a 25-story high-rise. The fire chasing one person from a seventh-floor balcony 
and he ends up clinging to the side of the building. A ladder truck came to his rescue and the rescue of many others, while helicopters plucked 15 others from the roof. 11 people, including a baby, were hurt. We have some breaking news for you now. In the coronavirus uh, story, BC's first case has now been confirmed. The province's health minister says test samples sent to the National Medical Laboratory in Winnipeg came back this afternoon as positive novel coronavirus. The man in his 40s had recently returned from a business trip to Wuhan, China. He remains in isolation at home. Not unexpected. We kind of knew that was going to happen, but still new information. And also new details are emerging about the moment before the helicopter crash that killed Kobe Bryant, his daughter and seven others. The NBA legends chopper lacked a safety feature that might have helped avoid the deadly impact. Three days after Sunday's crash, the hillside now cleared of wreckage. Investigators say the chopper just missed clearing the top of a ridge by only 30 feet, though it was one of many ridges and hills. Yet the Sikorsky helicopter was not equipped with TAWS, a terrain avoidance warning system required in commercial airplanes and medevac choppers to help pilots avoid steep terrain. Terrain ahead, pull up. For 16 years, the NTSB has recommended TAWS in large passenger choppers, but the FAA is still not requiring it. The FAA has to look at the cost as well as the, the likelihood and severity of this type of accident, and they have to balance how many accidents can they prevent and at what cost. Today, video of pilot Ara Zabayan flying in a chopper more than two years ago. Among the questions for investigators, did he become disoriented in Sunday's thick fog? The descent rate for the helicopter was over 2,000 feet a minute. This was a high-energy impact crash. In Los Angeles today, the Lakers were back at practice remembering all nine of the crash victims. In a tribute on TNT last night, teammate and close friend Shaquille O'Neal. haven't felt the pain that sharp. In a while, I now know what it feels like to lose a brother. Shaq surprised fans by appearing at the Staples Center. One more time. Kobe! 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 Another Laker legend, Magic Johnson on Jimmy Kimmel Live. And love playing the game, and then to see him, you know, just become a great father and husband. And he, he was enjoying life and uh, went way too, way too early. Today, Kobe Bryant's wife, Vanessa, now left with three girls to raise, changed her Instagram profile to a photo of Kobe with their 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, among the nine lost in a horrific crash. The company SpaceX successfully launched its fourth mission of Starlink satellites into orbit today. Following days of weather delays, the Falcon 9 rocket finally cleared for launch from Cape Canaveral, carrying a fourth batch of 60 Starlink Internet Relay satellites. By mid-2020, the company is hoping to have more than 700 satellites in space, enough to begin offering commercial space-to-Earth Internet transmissions across much of North America and eventually the globe. An estimated one billion animals have been impacted in the Australian bushfires, which have claimed the lives of at least 30 people and destroyed more than 10 million hectares of land. The disaster down under igniting a heartwarming gesture here from a group of Canadian students. 
What were some of the things that our friends were saying in Australia? Most of these young children had never heard of Australia until their teacher told them about the devastating wildfires. Was it easy for people in Australia to have to experience the fires? These first and second graders saddened by what they saw. There's animals that are dying, the trees are falling, koalas are dying too. Really sad. And why did you choose purple? Amanda Donovan teaches at this school outside of Montreal. Her parents were traveling to Australia on a cruise this month. It sparked an idea to make and send cards to firefighters. Kindness has absolutely no limits. And when it starts with our littlest, you know, to just think of their lives and, and how much kindness they can bring. I love that you're using pencil crayons and marker. The students made cards with messages of hope inside. I hope they get lots of rain in Australia. And my granddaughter, who is in grade one, her class made these cards. This week, Donovan's parents visited Eden, Australia. They hand-delivered the children's letters to the local fire department. On behalf of the St. John's... The fire department posted the story on Facebook. Australians responded with dozens of grateful messages. Ellie was so happy to see her grandparents delivering the messages. I loved when I saw the video. It was really fun to see that happen in Australia. And I thought it was really special for the kids to see how their gesture, their acts of kindness has an impact. Oh my God! The firefighters were so grateful. They're sending back goodies for the kids. And now they know. They sent their love around the world. And it came right back. Amanda Jalawicki, Global News, Montreal. In Health Matters tonight, an Okanagan philanthropist is opening up the conversation about mental health. Keep up the good work. I will. Okay, bye-bye. Nice okay, bye-bye. Tom Budd spent this morning at a coffee shop in downtown Kelowna talking to people and sharing his own journey and struggles. Both of his sons died by suicide in the last four years, bringing mental health issues to the forefront of his life. And in that I've had to learn about depression and suicide and other mental health issues and I've decided to try to help others. Around one in five Canadians will experience a mental health problem like depression or anxiety at some point in their lives. Bud has set up a memorial fund for his sons, plans to use it for youth initiatives that support mental health. More breaking news for you now. BC's police watchdog says Vancouver police played no part in the crash that killed a cab driver late last year. 28-year-old Sanipal Randawa was killed last December when his taxi was struck by a speeding car to go. Police say the car share vehicle fled a counterattack roadblock at a high rate of speed when officers attempted to pull the driver over. There was no pursuit, but the Independent Investigations Office was called in to see whether police actions or inaction contributed to the crash. Their investigation has determined officers did not play a role. All right, now you may remember him as the littlest Mountie honorary RCMP member and cancer survivor Casey Wright has often been featured on Global News. Now, as Linda Ellsworth reports, the teen who has undergone 14 brain surgeries while tirelessly fundraising for cancer research is taking his life story to the stage. Premieres can be nerve-wracking. But the star of this one-man show has nothing to worry about. My name is Casey Wright. 
I'm 19 years old. The audience is rooting for him. I've been fighting cancer, strokes, and aneurysms since the day I was born. Casey's stoic journey began at six months of age with a diagnosis of a brain tumor. My dad said it was kind of like a tiny octopus stuck in the middle of my brain. And so his play, the story of his young life, is fittingly called Casey and the Octopus. Family friend Danny Virtue is the executive producer. He's the comeback kid. He's been through everything and he's the strongest kid I ever met. We first met Casey when he was just 12 years old and on his way to Disneyland. My adrenaline is over the top. He had already endured numerous surgeries and cycles of chemotherapy in the battle against that relentless tumor. The tumor came back. It wrapped around the optic nerve of my left eye and killed it. Well, at least I had one good eye. (laughs) Humor and optimism are among Casey's many strengths. So is his compassionate and giving nature, which have led to his championing many causes through the years. He just has a presence in a room that it's hard to describe. And uh, he's done a lot for us in the RCMP as a spokesperson for the Canadian Cancer Society, Coughshire Cancer. It was also in the spirit of giving that Casey and the Octopus was created to bring hope through the telling of his story. I don't know exactly what my future holds, but I know this. Wherever there's a scared kid about to get an operation, I'll be there telling him it's going to be okay. Because if anyone knows about survival, it's Casey. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A standing O for Casey. Good to see. Now, he's hoping to book his one-man show in theaters across the country and eventually around the world with its powerful message. So if you'd like more information, we have a link to the Danny Virtue Foundation on our website, globalnews.ca slash bc. Good luck. It should go to Broadway. Yes, it should. (laughs) Off-Broadway and then Broadway. Exactly. Be great. All right. When the 49ers and Chiefs battle it out at Miami's Hard Rock Stadium Sunday, they won't be defending alone. What's in the sky over the Super Bowl after the forecast? All right. We'll check in with Kasia Badurka, who's in for Christy Forrest tonight. And look at that. There's a sunset behind you. That's Uh kind of incredible. Behold this beautiful image. I took this from our tower cam approximately 445, and I couldn't uh, decide which one I preferred. So there you have it, 534 as well. So you be the judge. It was really nice. Uh, Nice to see. But we need to talk about the rain. Between your Thursday and your Saturday morning, look at the rainfall totals we are anticipating for the South Coast. Anywhere between 50 and 100 millimeters of rain. This is going to be a super soaker. And with the onset of tomorrow's system, very gusty winds over the north coast, 90K plus. And then later in the morning and early afternoon, you're going to be the target across the central coast as well as northern Vancouver Island. So just a heads up. We're also going to be seeing our freezing levels. They're going to be fluctuating a fair amount. So we're sitting at about 1,200 meters. But then this is going to be your Friday, folks. We're going to be above 2,000 meters. That's super mild. And then it plummets super quickly on our Saturday into our Sunday. And that spells snow for a lot of us. Even along the lower mainland, the possibility of snow is there. So here's tomorrow's system. It sinks south tomorrow afternoon. That's when we're expecting the showers along the south coast. We're pretty much unscathed through the central interior and the southern interior until the evening hours. And then it's just a few rounds of systems. You know, rinse, repeat. Kind of like it's been over the past while. Meanwhile, in the, in the northeast of the province, increasing cloudiness 
it continues to be on the active side along the north coast, but we're going to clear out later in the afternoon. A sun cloud mix for many of us across the southern half of the province, and we don't pick up our precipitation until the evening, but it happens earlier in the day, especially on Vancouver Island, Port Hardy. It's going to be a gusty one. And here's your five-day for Metro Vancouver. There's your wet snow on your Sunday. The possibility is there. Okay, I'm going to show you your weather window. Basking in the sunshine, this is Bernie at Gold Pan Provincial Park, brought to us by Lauren. There you go, guys. Oh, so Aww. cute. Thanks, yeah. Kasha. While players defend the field on Super Bowl Sunday, they will have support overhead. Defending the skies is serious business. NORAD already training on a KC-135 brought in by the Tennessee Air National Guard. The aircraft will refuel fighter planes midair so they can remain above Hard Rock Stadium the whole time and not have to leave to fuel up. NORAD is assisting with the Super Bowl's massive aerial security mission and will be enforcing temporary flight restrictions over the venue. Times certainly have changed wow. since the very first Super Bowl, haven't no, they? No kidding. World domination for a local girl. <laughs> yes, it's taken a while, but Burnaby's Christine Sinclair now stands atop all international soccer players with 185 goals. She scored two today against St. Kitts and Nevis in an Olympic qualifying game down in Texas. That breaks the old record set by Abby Wambach of the U.S. If you're wondering, the highest scoring man in international soccer is Iran's Ali Daye with 109 goals. Sinclair scored her first goal for Canada back in the year 2000. That's when she was Christine 16. Now she's Christine 185. And here is the game. Too bad it wasn't in Canada. Would have been a much bigger crowd. But the first goal was on a penalty kick. That tied Wam back at 184. And then the 185 goal, the record breaker, right there. It was an easy game for Canada. They won this 11-0. Christine Sinclair has scored goals against 42 different countries. Her first goal was March 14, 2000. And she celebrates with the delayed strike. Well, that was going to be a spare. Uh, I definitely feel a relief, um, just especially with the tournament that we're in right now. There's there's some big things to focus on, and yeah, it's just nice to get it out of the way in the opening game. So now that we can focus on getting better, improving, and qualifying for the Olympics. Well, the Canucks are back on the road for five, starting tonight in San Jose. This might be the easiest of the five games for one reason it's in the same time zone. Because after this one, the Canucks have to go all the way back east. You don't see many Canuck trips start in California, then head all the way to New York for a game against the Islanders Saturday morning. Look for Jacob Marks from the starting goal tonight. He had the game against St. Louis off. Alex Ovechkin wore Kobe Bryant's 24 in warm-up as a tribute. He also wore or wears, I should say, Kobe Bryant's old number eight normally. And this is one of the easier Ovechkin goals ever. Puck just goes right in front of the net, and that's uh, 693. He's now one back of uh, Mark Messier. He's alone in ninth. Here's another weird goal. Former Canuck Nick Bonino scores on his own team. I guess he was trying to pass it across the net. It hits UC Soros and goes in. It's 4-4 in the third. In November of 2018, Manny Osborne parodies went off the course during a World Cup training run at Lake Louise. He hit a safety net in such a way that he suffered what doctors called a complicated leg break. It was such a severe injury that his teammate, Eric Gay, retired from racing 
only hours later. But Manny is not retired. He still has a desire to try the World Cup circuit again. This is what Manny Osborne Paradis wants to do again. And this is what has kept him from skiing for well over a year. The broken leg he suffered in 2018 wasn't the first time he had been injured skiing. He also broke his leg on this crash in 2011. But the 2018 crash certainly was worse. Uh, I've got two plates and now I have 12 screws because one was taken out. They replaced the bone in my leg with a hip bone and mostly bone cement. Okay, so the obvious question is, why race again, especially with all the rehab required? That's, that's the beauty of sport. That's what got me to where I am is, is doing all the stuff that so many people around me didn't think was possible or worth doing. And it's definitely defying the odds is, is how you even get to the World Cup in the first place. And that pretty much is the essence of a World Cup skier, overcoming obstacles, both physical and mental. That's what drives people like Manny Osborne parodies. I mean, we're always conquering demons. You know, you push out of the start gate knowing that something bad could happen, but also something really great could change your life. And there has been a lot of great in his career. 11 World Cup podium finishes, a bronze medal in a world championship, four Olympic games. He'd love to make it five in 2022, but that requires him being ready to race this November at Lake Louise. It looks positive, it looks doable, and that's the goal. And if that's not an achievable goal, uh, that, that may be the time when I would have to call it quits. But everyone close to Manny knows he's not ready to quit. And it would also be nice for his daughter Sloan to see her dad race as well. Uh, she, she, she realizes what's going on around her, and for her to, to witness me ski race, that would be a pretty special uh, opportunity. But at the end of the day, you know, these are, th- this is me being selfish, and these are my goals, and uh, I want to be the best in the world again. One of the most popular guys in the circuit, too. A lot of the skiers would love to see him back. Here's your ski report for today. A healthy snow base of 238 centimeters at Whistler Blackcomb. Cypress has 260. Manning Park, 170 centimeters. Revelstoke, seven new centimeters of snow. Fernie recently got three. Now up to 281 centimeters of snow. Silver Star, 221. Mount Washington picked up 10 centimeters of snow. So did Red Mountain. Powder King has close to 300 centimeters of snow on the ground. An American Air Force veteran was as surprised as anyone to find out he was in possession of a fortune he didn't even know he had. Back in the 1970s, he spent about $350 on a brand new Rolex watch. Harry Smith has the incredible story of what that same watch is worth today. It happened Monday on Antiques Roadshow. A man in West Fargo, North Dakota, named David, heard the estimated value of a watch he kept in a safety deposit box for decades. You okay? We love the PBS show because whose family doesn't believe Aunt Sadie's old brooch or the painting you picked up at a yard sale might really be worth a small fortune. A man brought to tears when he found the old Navajo blanket he kept on the back of a chair was a rare artifact. It's about a half a million dollars. Oh, my God. Or a vase bought for $4.99 worth... Somewhere between fifty dollars and $100,000. can't believe that. David's West Fargo Rolex is in pristine condition, a model known as a Daytona. 
A Paul Newman watch that he kept all the paperwork and never wore it makes it even more valuable. He purchased it while serving in the Air Force in the 1970s. And the price back then? About a month's salary. And the value now? Five hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars. Yes. Enough to knock you off your feet. Harry Smith, okay? NBC News. Uh, <laughs> he was fine. Now, he's not the dude from Duck Dynasty, is he? No, he kind of yeah. looks like okay. it, though. 1970s war vet. <laughs> Kept the look. My watch is worth that much. No. Definitely not. Your watch Crazy. tells you your heart beating. It does, yeah. How many steps? How many steps today? Very calm right now. Well, I got to close the rings. I got to close the rings. Let's wind this up with uh, last word on weather. How about that? Okay, well, we are looking at the comeback of showers tomorrow afternoon. So kicking off the day, even with a little sunshine, then an increase in clouds. We're getting a good 50 to 100 millimeters of rain by your Saturday. Wow. I like how you said There you that. have it. Oh my goodness, we're getting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what else is new? No clapping. Thanks very much for watching, everyone. Have a great night. Good night.